Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, an neonatologist and an infant medical director of TIPQC. This is the second part of a series on syphilis. On episode 77, Dr. Tate, TIPQC's maternal medical director, interviewed Stephanie Cavallo. She is the Sexual Transmitted Infections Program Director at the Tennessee of Public Health. They discussed the increase in syphilis cases that have been seen around our state over the past couple of years. Today's episode is specifically for the pediatric care provider, as TIPQC wants to make sure you're keeping this on your radar as we see the rise of cases in our state. We want to remind you of how congenital syphilis might present and what you need to do to diagnose and treat it. Our guest today is an expert in this area. Dr. Greg Wilson is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Dr. Wilson received his training in pediatrics and pediatric infectious disease at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. He is the director of the Vanderbilt Pediatric and Adolescent HIV and AIDS Clinic and the director of infection prevention at Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. Dr. Wilson, welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. And are you okay with me calling you Greg? Yes, that's per- that's fine. So as we get started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you wind up as a specialist in pediatric infectious diseases? Well, that all started during my uh, first year of training um, um, and actually occurred while I was doing one rotation on the, the general pediatric wards. And those are the, the, the rooms or floors where you know, patients are admitted for various problems coming into the hospital. Um, and I was thinking of several different subspecialties, but on one rotation, um, I had a set of special attendings. And back then, uh, attendings were general, we had a general pediatric provider from the community and a subspecialist from our hospital. So uh, the general pediatric attending was Bill Watlington from Nashville and the subspecialty attending was Kathy Edwards from Infectious Diseases. And I just learned so much during that rotation and had so much fun that after that I was hooked on uh, infectious diseases. So that was, you know, that's my story. Two great mentors. Yeah, those are, those are some legends in, uh, in, in your field. So uh, it's, it's always fun to to think about the people who've influenced us. And I know over your career, you have probably influenced many, many others to, to follow in, in your footsteps and, uh, and uh, start a career in pediatric infectious diseases. So, so thank you for what you have done in this area. So, you know, I want to jump right into our topic of the day, and that is uh, congenital syphilis. Uh, just, re- just recently, over the past couple of weeks, the Tennessee Department of Health sh- shared some current statistics on syphilis in Tennessee. So I was shocked by these numbers. 
So let me share those numbers with you. And this is looking at changes in cases from 2012 to 2021. So 2021, that's the last year we have, uh, have complete data so far. So we've had a 300% increase in all syphilis cases in Tennessee over that time. We've had a 400% increase in syphilis detected during pregnancy. And now here is why we are here today uh, with this discussion we're about to have in this podcast. We have had a 1,000% increase in congenital syphilis cases across Tennessee from 2012 to 2021. And at least one case has been reported in all of the public health regions of our state. I was completely floored by those statistics. Has your department, has your, your division been seeing this, uh, the impact of this as well? Yes, we, we certainly have. I mean, over the past um, definitely year, probably year and a half to two years, we've definitely been impacted by um, the number of um, consultations that we get in the hospital related to pregnant women giving birth to newborn babies. Um, um, it's just amazing that almost every time that I'm, I'm um, on service in the hospital for the consultation or, the, um, or our um, admission service, we're getting uh, questions from providers about women who are uh, RPR positive or, or questions about syphilis and then how this impacts their babies and what should be done. So we're de we've definitely seen a trend that's been happening definitely for the past year, year and a half. So up until recently, I had never actually seen a confirmed neonatal syphilis case in my entire career. Now, I've been doing this for nearly 20 years at this point, but all of a sudden, like the past six months to a year or so, we have had several confirmed neonatal syphilis cases in my neonatal intensive care unit. So you're just telling me that you're seeing cases not only when you're on service and taking calls from within Vanderbilt's facility, but are you getting calls from other doctors around the state who are calling you to get advice uh, about what they should do and how they should work up these babies? Uh, yes, we are. The, and mainly those calls are coming in from the Middle Tennessee area. So, um, and they're, they're mainly of the uh, questions from providers related to um, babies coming in for their well-child visit um, and then getting additional history from mother about syphilis, um, not knowing all of mother's details, um, and then um, referring them to our um, outpatient clinic service for further uh, management and investigation. When you get those babies in at your clinic, then, then what are you typically seeing? Are they testing positive, testing negative? What evaluations are you having to do? Well, for congenital syphilis, it's really information that's needed both from the maternal side of the equation and then also from the baby. Um, mother's history is very important because we need to know, you know, one, uh, did mother know that she had syphilis at all? If she did, was she treated? What was she treated with? Um, and then how long that treatment occurred before delivery? That's very important from the maternal side when we evaluate the baby. And then for the baby, what we're doing is, you know, looking, the, the, the clinical exam can be very important because you can find physical findings on exam 
but we also need to test the baby. Uh, we can talk more about the, the sort of the blood test that we do, but test the baby to see are they coming up positive for syphilis? And then we have to look at that in the context of what was mother's results. So, you know, when infants are coming in to see us, it's really both the mother and the infant that we have to look at from a diagnostic standpoint. The clinical exam can, can help us, but that information from the maternal side and treatment and then the baby's labs, are, uh, we need all of that information. Hmm. So let's talk about the baby just a little bit more. And I, I, I want to use the scenario that you just gave us, uh, somebody who has a pediatric clinic somewhere, they're getting some information, they have some concerns. What might they see on their physical exam that may make them concerned the baby has congenital syphilis? Okay. Things on physical exam that are important would be, does the baby have an enlarged liver? Does the baby have an enlarged spleen? Um, um, does the baby have enlarged lymph nodes that are present not just in one place, but in large lymph nodes in the neck, under the arms, in the inguinal area. Um, also, you know, something, you know, does the baby have any signs of jaundice? But the, the key things that really come up on exam is does the baby have any hepatomegaly or hepatosplenomegaly? And also, does the baby have enlarged lymph nodes? You know, those could be key signs of syphilis. Other infections can also cause that. And then that would sort of lead us down the road to getting blood tests on the baby to test for syphilis, as well as trying to get information on the mother to see if she were treated, but she had treated adequately and in enough time before delivery of the baby, which would make the baby's risk of acquiring congenital syphilis much lower. Hmm. So let's talk about the mother there just a little bit. What resource might a general pediatrician use who's trying to work through this? What might they use to be able to work through these questions about the mother? And then, then what type of questions do they have to ask about the mother's treatment or history? Okay. Well, a good source for all of this, and I just sort of brought it, I want to give a plug for it, is the Red Book. So the Red Book always has a good guide as to what do we need to know from the mother's side, of the, the mother's treatment information, and what do we need to know from the baby's side? But from the mother's side, the most important things are if when she had her diagnosis of syphilis, um, what testing was done, and there's specific antibody testing that is done and then reflexes over to a test that's called the RPR that lots of people know of. And so what was the mother's RPR titer at the beginning of everything? Um, was she classified as having syphilis that was in the first year after that? Because that would affect whether she gets treatment for one week versus three weeks. Uh, did she complete her treatment? And then after completing her treatment, what was the change in her RPR result value? Because we look at adequate treatment as mother being treated either with one dose of penicillin if this is early and in the first year, three doses if it's latent, and then what was the drop in her RPR result before treatment and then at the end of treatment? So I think that's one of the most confusing things for a lot of people are those dilutions that are in that. How, how do you teach that to your residents or explain that to your residents? 
Well, it's an old-fashioned, well, to me it's not an old-fashioned test, but it's a tighter test. And as you say, it is a dilution. And so what we look at is for mother to have a fall in her titer, and that fall must be greater, greater than fourfold. So for instance, if mother had an RPR that was at a value of one to 16 at the beginning, then what we'd want to see is that her titer at the end drops down to one to four or, or below that. And so the dilutions for that would be going from one to 16 to one to eight, and then one to eight to one to four. And so if mother has an adequate drop or fourfold drop, then she has responded to treatment adequately. But that's not the end of the story. All of that needs to be to happen more than four weeks or 30 days prior to delivery of the baby. And then if it doesn't happen within that time frame, what's it recommended for the pediatrician or neonatal care provider to do? Well, then at that time, what we have to do is to look at what are the baby's results, okay? And so for the baby side of the equation, what we want to see is that when we test the baby, the baby has to have an RPR that is either equal to mother's lowest dilution if she's completed treatment or much less than that. And so we look at the RPR dilution that the baby has and then depending upon whether that is adequate or not, we have to do other diagnostic evaluations if we think that this baby is at higher risk of syphilis. So let's say that, you know, you know, mother started out at a value of 1 to 32 before treatment. She dropped down to 1 to 4. So when someone comes to us and saying, is this baby at risk, we'd want the baby's RPR to be 1 to 4 or less than that, or even to be non-reactive. In that case, that baby is, you know, not at risk. Uh, we would still do at least a physical exam to make sure that the baby has no signs of syphilis, but that would be a baby who is, you know, unlikely to have syphilis and would really um, not need any follow-up with their pediatricians. And that's the case where their RPR is non-reactive. Now, if it's some variation of that, then what we have to do is do diagnostic testing on the baby, physical exam, maybe even x-rays, uh, if baby is at high risk, we might have to do an LP. And then based on that, all of that information coming back, um, we, we, we determine what treatment the baby needs. Okay. So you mentioned all this stuff is in the Red Book. If we've got some, a general pediatric provider who's listening to us right now, we're going to provide a link in our show notes to the Red Book so you can get access to this information. Because I, I don't know, Greg, I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. I think it's a complex chart. And every time I've got a patient that it is has a this, complex I, chart. Yeah, <laughs> I've got to get that chart out and then track it and make sure I'm making the right decision. So it's really nice to hear a pediatric infectious disease specialist who does that this all the time <laughs> also to say it's a complex chart. But I, I would say the key things in that chart from the maternal side would be, was the mother adequately treated or not? Uh, if she's not treated, then the baby's going to be at risk, and the baby will probably will need diagnostic workup. If mother was adequately treated, 
and that occurred more than a month prior to delivery and the baby's testing turns out to be either um, um, at mother's lowest value or non-reactive, then that's a baby who's not at risk and will not need treatment if their if their RPR is is, is non-reactive. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that that yeah. workup that you were talking about earlier. If I remember from my medical school days, syphilis has been called the great mimicker. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, it mimics a lot of different diseases, yes. and, and you mentioned like getting a bone, the skeletal survey, looking at bone films, doing a lumbar puncture. What are some other things like a general pediatrician might see as a baby gets older if they, if they have congenital syphilis or have developed this? Okay. Well, if a baby does have congenital syphilis and has not been treated, um, findings in the physical exam are, are very important. So, um, uh, findings that would occur in, let's say, a child, you know, who did have congenital syphilis, was not identified, and is more than two years of age comes in, uh, the pediatrician might notice that their head, looks, their head looks a little bit funny, such as the forehead is sort of very prominent. We call that frontal bossing. Um, they could notice that the child's teeth are sort of or widespread or might have notches in them. Uh, that's called Hutchinson's teeth. Hutchinson's teeth. Um, they might notice that um, uh, the bones of the lower extremities, the lower legs, are a little bit prominent. So uh, the shins of the lower leg are prominent. They might do find those, uh, identify that. And then the child may complain of having some difficulties as far as vision. And so undiagnosed congenital syphilis can lead to keratitis of the eye, uh, even glaucoma. Um, and then something that happens later for older children is actually hearing loss. So it can affect, um, uh, it can affect the bones of the head, of the lower extremities, you would see that. It can affect the eyes, it can affect the mouth. And if a baby has neurocephalus, it can also affect their intellectual ability. Hmm. So what's the first test a, a pediatrician should order if they're suspecting congenital syphilis? Uh, the first test to order is actually um, um, uh, antibody testing. Uh, and so the way that antibody testing uh, happens today is that uh, there is first the specific test for syphilis, which is a treponemal antibody test. And then if that test is positive, it will reflex to the RPR. So that's a little bit different than when I trained. In the beginning, we could get an RPR right up front. But the algorithms for testing right now are a specific antibody, and then that will then reflex to uh, non-treponemal antibody testing or the RPR. So antibody testing would be the first thing. You could also just get a complete blood count and platelet count because um, changes in white blood cell count, you could have a high white blood cell count or a low white blood cell count. Anemia is a key thing and also thrombocytopenia is a key thing. For the practitioner that is more adventurous, they could get long bone films on the, on the infant. Um, 
But I think an antibody test would be a first step, a CBC, um, and then also mother's history. I think with that information, they would have enough to say, I'm worried about this child, they're at risk, and then refer to an infectious disease specialist. And then what's the mainstay of treatment uh, for these kids? Once you've made the diagnosis, how do you, how do you handle it? Yeah, mainstay of treatment is penicillin. Wow, and penicillin, so, that's great. <laughs> yes, one of our oldest antibiotics yeah. is, is still the gold standard for treatment. Um, and so um, based on the information that comes, children can be put into categories where they're felt to have to less likely have congenital syphilis, to possibly have congenital syphilis, or to, or to definitely have congenital syphilis. And so for those kids in the highest category who definitely have it after all the testing, then they need intravenous penicillin in the hospital. Um, for children under that category who may be a possible or less likely, they could have an injection of penicillin, benzathine penicillin, which is long lasting, but in order to have that, their workup needs to be pristine, Mother's workup needs to be almost completely normal. There might be an issue of, well, mother got everything correctly, but it wasn't completed um, with more than 30 days prior to delivery. And so that child may be normal by all aspects. And so that child, while they could get IV penicillin, another possibility is to do IM penicillin, but that child would need to be followed closely by the pediatrician for the first six to nine months of life and have repeat antibody testing. Yeah, to make sure they stay within that, in that, in that low dilution range, so possibly needing further treatment if it, if it goes up. We want to see for those children, is any child who, whether they're high risk or low risk and has a positive RPR, we want to see that, we want to see that, that RPR becomes non-reactive. Hmm. So for the low-risk children, that should occur in the first three to four months of life. For other children, we can follow that for up to six to 12 months. But we want to make sure that the RPR becomes non-reactive for the child. So what kind of follow-up is needed for these kids? Is this something a general pediatrician can do, or do they need to always follow up with pediatric infectious disease, or does it depend on which category you're in? No, I think that this is something definitely that general pediatricians can follow up. And, you know, if they have questions during the follow-up, then they can, you know, definitely call a subspecialist in infectious diseases. But it's simply, uh, and I think the best time to do this is at the well-child visit. So the child needs to have follow-up RPR testing. And so that titer needs to be followed at well-child visits. So, and those are perfect for doing that. Um, and if there's any question of the RPR staying positive uh, in children, especially when you're getting to the nine to 12 month age period, uh, and especially if there are any signs on physical exam that are worrisome, then that's the time that the, the provider should contact someone uh, in pediatric infectious diseases. Let's, uh, let's talk about the long-term consequences. You've mentioned some of these, but if we've got a kid who, who has untreated congenital syphilis, what's, what, what's the long-term consequences that we need to worry about? Or maybe even a, a delay in identification or treatment. Why is this so important that this is diagnosed and treated appropriately? Yeah. 
I think the long the some of the key long-term consequences are undiagnosed congenital syphilis that infects the central nervous system, then that could lead to, as I say, um, um, intellectual disabilities. It can also result in hydrocephalus in which the child might need to see a neurosurgeon. Um, it can affect vision. Um, it can affect hearing. And then it can affect bone development. And so those are sort of the immediate things in childhood. But, you know, someone who might go on to adulthood, um, uh, you know, be, be undiagnosed and then go on to adulthood, then there are um, um, other things that come into play or things that can affect, again, the central nervous system and can affect the heart and can affect sort of the tissues all over the body as far as um, sort of granulomatous inflammation affecting organs and, and, and causing problems. Um, but hopefully someone with congenital syphilis never gets to really sort of the late adult stage, which is 15 to 30 years later. Um, hopefully they never get to sort of the, the late stage of congenital syphilis, which is after two years, in which they're having you know, hearing, eye, uh, or, or bony problems. Um, but if someone would get to the stage, would get to sort of the toddler stage, then there are definitely those physical findings that I mentioned that the pediatrician could identify and then refer them in um, for further uh, testing and also treatment. Yeah, this is one of the reasons we're having this podcast because we don't want you seeing some of these later kids that are identified late. We, we want this to be on all the our, our state providers' radar, so they know that this is happening across the state, that there's an increase in cases, and that they're identifying these cases, following the, the Red Book protocol, and then contacting uh, your colleagues if they, if they have any questions at all. Uh, we do have parents that listen to this podcast, too. So if, if there's a parent that has made it this far in this podcast, and maybe they've got an infant with congenital syphilis or worried about that, uh, what would you want a, a parent who's listening to know? Okay. I think if the child is in the workup phase, then uh, the good things about this is that, uh, you know, penicillin has been the mainstay. Um, uh, the organism is definitely sensitive to it. Um, and so the child needs to be, tr you know, um, treated with penicillin. And again, it would depend upon whether they're, you know, based on information at, at at low risk, or maybe if it's much later, they're in the higher risk category, then, you know, they need, they would need a workup, hospital stay, IV penicillin, and the treatment for that would be 14 days. And so, you know, that would, you know, take care of the organism, but then still after that, the child, who would probably have a positive RPR, would need to be followed by the pediatrician to make sure that that goes to non-reactive. Um, occasionally, there may be children whose RPRs are still uh, positive into the, the second year of life. And so in that case, those particular children may need a reevaluation again, uh, which more than likely would include, if they have CNS involvement the first time, would include another um, lumbar puncture to look at their spinal fluid. Um, and then that's a rare category, but if they're still positive at that time, we need a second treatment with IV penicillin. That's a very rare, rare case. Okay. For, chill, for, for families who have children who have been treated with congenital syphilis 
and who have some sequela or manifestations of that, it's really making sure that those children are hooked in with, with the subspecialty care that they need. Um, if there is central nervous system involvement in children and they have you know, meningitis as a result of this, um, uh, Tennessee Early Intervention Services, getting that child into that program so that they can get all the subspecialty services that they need to improve their neural development um, um, is important. Uh, if they have uh, eye findings that has resulted in some scarring, making sure that they tied in with the ophthalmologist. And then for those children that have any, any bone or orthopedic problems to make sure that they're, they're tied in with an orthopedist for services that they need. Excellent. Well, hey, Greg, thank you so much for spending time with us today and just explaining this uh, topic to us that, uh, again, we want every pediatric provider to, to be aware of what has taken place in our state to have this on, on, uh, on their radar. And as we wrap up, this is one of my favorite questions to ask. And I'd love to ask this of everybody because I get some amazing answers. And if somebody gave you a billboard, they're on I-40, I-65, let's just give you one on I-24 too. And you could put anything you wanted to on that billboard. And you've got thousands and thousands of people who are driving past that every day there in Nashville. And this, is, this could be a, a quote about the topic we've talked about today, or maybe it's just a, a life quote that you live by that you would want to share some good news with everybody, what, what would that billboard say and why? Maybe something like, we're all working together for the health um, of your child. Um, uh, I think that would probably, I think that that, I think that's important for the topic today. Um, uh, also important for, for lots of other issues too. It is. It really is. And, and that's what TIPQC is doing. We're working hard for the health of your, of your child, everybody that's listening to us today. And I know that's what everybody at, at your hospital and in your division is doing as well, Greg. So again, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.